0: Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is over Zechariah, chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, entitled, Jerusalem, the Jews and World Peace. Good morning. Welcome to Island Baptist Church, Memorial Weekend. Glad you're all here. Hope you brought a Bible. If you didn't, there is a Bible in the pew in front of you. If that's not so, then there is one on your phone. I know we're going to be in the book of Zechariah the book of Zechariah, working our way through the Old Testament, the highlights of the Old Testament. So we find ourselves here in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 1, and uh, we'll be, we were there last week, we'll be continuing Zechariah 1. Zechariah is a tough book, uh, really tough on the level of Daniel, on the level of Revelation, lots of visions, lots of imagery, uh, and lots of stuff you're expected to know, even though, You might not because these tough places like this require us to do a lot of homework, and sometimes we're not willing to do the homework. And um, so, we're going to be getting into the nitty gritty of this. It's sort of, uh, we just kind of take it as it comes, and uh, we don't skip around and find stuff that we like to preach on. Instead, we just go right over the. And if anything, I make myself go to the tough stuff because it it makes us deal with it. And um, all the Word of God for all the people of God, right? So, Zechariah chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, and we're going to be seeing the first of eight, or some people think ten, visions, it depends on how you divide them, that Zechariah receives in a single night. Uh, some think they were dreams, it actually says they were visions, so I'm for taking it that way. It says it's a vision, I, he could've had it while asleep or while awake, I guess it's irrelevant, but um, he has these visions in one, so it was a really rough night for him, let's just say that. And so. He, um, we're going we're gonna to read the first one. The first one is the premier one, not only in the sense that it's first, but also because all the other visions after this basically are just there to describe what took place in the first vision. They're basically an elaboration of, of uh, what's being said here in the first chapter. So let's take a look at it, and then we're going to take a while or the rest of our time uh, describing it here together. On the 24th day of the 11th month, he's very specific about his days, just like his predecessor, Haggai. The month of Shabbat. It says, In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, as follows. I saw, and it was a vision, remember? But he's not seeing stuff that eyes can see. He's seeing stuff that only God can enable you to see. It's not open for us to see this kind of stuff. You can't freely decide whether you're going to step in or out of the spirit realm. i um, sorry. And if you do, you've got problems, I would say that for sure. And behold, a man was riding on a red horse. Well, this, of course, is not a man, and it's not a red horse, but nonetheless, it's imagery here. We're we're given imagery, and the symbolism is meant to convey a message, and we're going to get to what it is in a bit. But nonetheless, mark it carefully. Red horses are not good things when used in, in imagery in the Bible. Let's just say that. Red is the same color as blood for that same reason. So he was standing among the myrtle trees... So he's gotten off the horse, apparently, and the ravine with red and sorrel and white horses behind him. We assumed there, and it presumes this in other places, that these are also mounts. They're, they're ridden. So these are, this is a troop, if you will. He says, and then I said, my Lord, what are these? I'm glad he asked that question, aren't you? Because don't you want to know? We're going to see what God has to say to us. And the angel was speaking with me, said to me, I will show you. I'm glad he said that as well. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and says, These are whom the Lord has sent to patrol. So now this spokesperson who's gotten off the red horse is now speaking for the whole group. The answer of the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle So now we've changed his status. We've gone from an angel apparently or seemingly riding a red horse to standing next to the red horse to speaking on behalf of the Lord. Now he's speaking as if he is the Lord because that is what he is. And just to give you a little bit of preemption here, uh, the angel of the Lord, when he when he appears in the Old Testament, is always the pre-incarnate Christ. So, just to let you know, this is this is Jesus Himself, pre-incarnate. So, so it should it should step up a little bit here, of kind of the uh, importance of this imagery. So, we have patrolled the answer, the 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 angel of the Lord, verse 12. I'm sorry, O Lord of hosts, how long? Here's the angel of the Lord, Jesus Himself speaking to God the Father. Wilt thou not? No longer have compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, for which thou hast been indignant these seventy years. And the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with him with gracious words comforting him. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly zealous for Jerusalem and Zion. You might want to underline that. And I would suggest to you as a, as a good study and we're going, to do, we're going to be answering part of that study this morning, is why is he, and what does it mean for him to be extremely jealous for the city of Jerusalem and for the area and the environments of Jerusalem there called Zion. But I am very angry with the nations. The word there is from the Arabic originally, not originally Hebrew. The word literally means to be red in the face. So God is red in the face over the fact that these people are at ease. So the recon mission has come back and said there's peace all over earth, and God says, I don't like it. So God's against world peace? Yeah, the wrong kind. He certainly is. The world peace we're putting off today is supposedly peace. is not world peace. He's against it. You need to know that. God's not in favor of it because it's not, it's not peace with him. It's a false peace. It's a lie. It's a mirage. It's, it's nothing, and it won't last, and mark it carefully. So that was a little angry, God says, but they furthered the disaster, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched out of Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again, choose Jerusalem. So it's, it's a message, if you will, to Israel. It's a, it's a vision to Israel to bring comfort and understanding for them. And so, but before we can get to what this message, the full understanding of what it actually is, we're going to have to get some underlying things out of the way. And underlying things that are defined for us that the Holy Spirit, who is inspiring this text, is expecting us to understand. And until we're good with these things, like I said, until we do our homework, then these more difficult passages like this are not going to make sense. Because he's expecting us to understand a perspective that he has. And how many of us here had the correct perspective with regards to God? Yeah, me neither. So we're working on it together. So when we come across places like this, we're working hard to get to the place where I can see it the way God sees it, understand it the way he understands it, so that I can properly apply it in my life and properly apply it to the world that I live in. So several items that we've got to get cleared up before we can understand what this vision is from Zechariah. The first thing we have to understand is you have to understand, because it's the main point of this whole vision, you have to understand the city of Jerusalem. You have to understand what it means in the Bible, and I guess most importantly, what Jerusalem means to God. I don't know what it means to you, and I don't know what it means to the world, and with no offense, but I don't really care either. I do care, or I should say we should care, what the city means to God, and as best we can change our perspective on that city to be the same as God's. And so here's some perspective for you. The city of Jerusalem is a conundrum. It just is. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit into any kind of parameters, or you can't decide based upon numbers of why it is and why it's held the prominence that it has held. Let me just say this just right out front. It should not have held the prominence throughout the ages nor had the prominence it has today unless there is a God and the Bible is true you cannot explain it any other way you try to make it make sense any other way you're you're gonna be in a conundrum it doesn't make sense it will not make sense you will not get the two ends to meet ever it it, here's the reason why it's conundrum and why it shouldn't have prominence is because there's so many things against that possibility here take take this for example it is not nor has it ever been on a thoroughfare of any kind it was established on the way to nothing you're not going to anywhere, even today, when you go to Jerusalem. It's not on a road. I guess there's a road there now. There was a road back then, but it wasn't on a thoroughfare. The thoroughfares either went to the east of it or to the west of it. And, and by the way, if you're building a city ever and expect it to be prominent, don't do what they did with Jerusalem. And not put it on anything. Because that is not, and by the way, God intended to be there that way. It's a plan of God, but, but if, if you're going to build a, a, a city and have a lot of people come to it, don't make it on the way to nothing. It's tough to grow a city like that, as opposed to cities of the same, at the same time, like a Rome or a Babylon or, a, or a, you know, a Houston, I mean, for crying out loud. It's got to be on something. It's got to matter. It's this, this city, Jerusalem, is not on a river. It's not on a body of water. It's not a stronghold of commerce. Uh, neither does it give those who live there a quick access to anything as opposed to a Rome or a Babylon or a Cairo or a New York, which in all cases are either on rivers or on large bodies of waters or on major thoroughfares or on all the above. That's the way you build a city. There is no reason why this city should have the prominence that it has. Nonetheless, it does. Like I said, it's a conundrum. It has no natural resources, unless you think rocks are natural resources. That's all it's got. Why does it hold the prominence that it holds unless, like I said, there is a God and the Bible is true? Historically, it has always been quite small. Those of you who are well-versed in the Scriptures, you're familiar with King David and his reign. When David reigned and when he conquered the city of Jerusalem and it was named the City of David, it's still called that, when it was named the City of David, the population total in Jerusalem, his entire reign was about 1,000 people. Anybody here from a thousand-person hometown? Anybody? If you are, you're related to half the people in that town, aren't you? And you know everybody else's business, don't you? It's a little bitty place. That's all it was. When Solomon reigned over it, at its pinnacle in the ancient times, Solomon's reign in Jerusalem. There was only 10,000 people living in the city. I'm from a 10,000-person city, and none of you know the name. You want to know why? Because no one pays attention to 10,000-person cities. So why is this city prominent? Why does it stand out? Like I said, it doesn't make sense unless you believe the Bible is true and that there is a God. Historically, like I said, it's always been small. Uh, uh, Solomon under Solomon, 10,000, maybe two or 3,000 as Zechariah writes his book. Very, very small town. Uh, 600,000 at the time of Christ reaches its pinnacle as far as population, but more than half that population were not Jewish. They were Roman soldiers. They were of all different uh, creeds and backgrounds. Uh, as, a pair, as compared to cities of the day, like Rome, which was 4 million, uh, Babylon, uh, 250,000, uh, um, Assyria, uh, Nineveh, 600,000. Uh, today, the city of Jerusalem is only 800,000. So Whatever you hear in the news, the whole city is only 800,000 people. We have a city in our valley that's about the same size. The largest city in the, south, in the valley area is McAllen. It's roughly 800,000 people. Now, any And anybody here had never heard of McAllen until I just said it? There you go. You wanna know why? Because she's not from here, and you have to be from here to know it. Or you go to anywhere else in Texas, in many cases, they don't know what McAllen, McAllen, I don't know what McAllen, where's McAllen? You travel anywhere in the world outside of Texas, and they surely haven't heard of McAllen. There's a very good reason for it. No one pays attention to cities of 800,000. Get to a million. Talk to me about Houston, about a San Antonio, about a Dallas, about a New York, about a Kansas City, right? Because those are prominent cities. The city's never been Jerusalem, more than 800,000, and yet it's held extreme prominence. Like I said, it's a conundrum. Unless the Bible is true, and unless there is a God. Here's here's an example, a picture I took when we were there in in Jerusalem uh, a couple of months ago. And this is a picture of the plaque on the outside of the United States Embassy. The embassy, of course, and if you haven't heard the news, got moved from Tel Aviv 45 miles to Jerusalem. And the whole world lost their minds over it because they just did. And I'm glad they did, too, by the way. It needed to be there. It's always been their capital. I and mean, you know, It's just a lie to say it, it isn't. But so, so back to the 800,000 people, though. So an 800,000 city received a plaque in an embassy only move 45 miles and the whole world just has a cow over it so let's let's compare just just 15 hours from here is one of the largest if not the largest city in the world you know that Mexico City is gigantic 20 million people live in Mexico City so by the way there's a plaque like that in Mexico City the United States Embassy let's say we go down at the United States go down to Mexico, and we move the United States Embassy out of Mexico City, and we move it into a suburb of Mexico City. Is anybody going to care? No. A few Mexicans, right? But I don't care. We've got an embassy in Mexico. That's all I care about. That's all our government cares about. The world will never lose their minds. They wouldn't care. But I, like I said, you travel a plaque in, a, in an embassy 45 miles to the city of Jerusalem, and even though as small as it is, And the whole world loses their minds? It doesn't make sense. It's a conundrum. Unless the Bible is true and there is a God. The city has always, listen, factored very little into history as far as the world's historians have have been concerned. You look at the history of the Romans. You look at the history of Babylonians. Look at the history of the Persians. Look at the history of the Greeks. Read their stuff. They don't mention Jerusalem. They do in many cases, very briefly, only as they conquered it. Factored, not at all. It, it came into prominence again, like I said, when the Romans conquered it, and then Romans destroyed it, and it basically fell off the pages of history. If you heard about Jerusalem ever for 1,000, almost 2,000 years, you only heard it in a sermon like this. Because it did not show up in the news, because it didn't matter. It was ruled by the, by the, by the Muslims for 500 some odd years. No one cared about the city until 1948, when God moved his people back to that city. And especially in 1967, when he moved them in officially, in not just to the country, but also into the city. The city's name means, Jerusalem means, in it there is peace. And it is, like I said, it's a conundrum. So you've got a name that it has never lived up to. Let me just give you some statistics on the peace that has happened in this city. It has been attacked 52 times in history. Any of your hometowns been attacked? My hometown was attacked by a rival football team, and they burned their letters with diesel in our football field. We're going to get them. <laughs> That's the worst we've ever known. That's the worst we any most of us here have ever known. This city has been attacked, I mean, with arms to kill people 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times, in the time of his existence, placed under siege 23 times, been completely destroyed, leveled to the ground twice. The Bible says it's got a third one coming. The excavations there uncovered layer upon layer of either rubble or burnt material, 20 or more layers, different sections of the city that have been completely obliterated, 20 different times. One city built on top of it, that one gets wiped out. Another city built on top of that, that one gets wiped out. They build another one on top of the rubble of all that, and it continues to go. The city's never been more than 800,000 people as far as population, and yet the low estimates of the number of people that are dead there, the city's a cemetery. The low estimate of the people that have been buried in that city is two and a half million people. So if you live in, if you live in Jerusalem and you have dirt in your yard, guess what that came from? Not from decaying plants. It's rich, Saul. That's rich. So, again, it's a conundrum. And if you believe the Bible and believe there is a God, you need to know this that the God of the Bible is setting up this city to be the fulcrum of all things that come to an end. Look at what Zechariah 12. Again, we got the same prophet. This is his final prophecy, your final vision. Look at what he says. It will come. This is God speaking. It will come about in that day, the day that God chooses, that I, God speaking, will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Mark it carefully. It's coming. It's coming. Even though it's not without prominence, it operates as if it's the center of the world, right? Because, um, well, because it is. Because it is. Thus says the Lord, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations, with lands around her. God established, like I said, even if you don't believe the Bible and believe there is a God, you're going to have to deal with the fact that the city still operates exactly the way, like I said, it's it's as if it is the center of the world. By the way, the word center there in the Hebrew literally means belly button. The navel of the world, God says. It operates that way. Amazing, right? Maybe you should learn the Bible Here, Here's what else you need to know about that city It is God's hometown it's, he's got to call a place a hometown. He's picked this city for the Lord has chosen Zion He desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place. How long? forever Here I will dwell For I have desired it. So you believe there is a God and you believe in the Bible. You also have to believe the Bible, which teaches us that there is a devil. And so now you know why this city has had all the trouble it's had. So if I'm the devil, if you're the devil, some people think you are, wouldn't you attack this city? Wouldn't you be after it? Wouldn't it look, with all the desolations and all the destructions and all the sieges and all the things that have happened to it, doesn't it look like there really is a God and there really is the Bible's true and there really is a devil, doesn't it look like that? I think it does. I really do. So number one, in order to understand this vision, by the way, it's just an introduction. I hope you're comfortable, because we're just now introducing the sermon. Number two, number two, here we go. You have to understand the city, and you have to understand the people of the city, namely the Jews. God has chosen the Jews. Get over it. He's chosen them to be his people, not for any other reason other than he chose them to be his people. God sovereignly decided but they were gonna just be his people. And the Bible is very explicit about the reasons why he did not choose them. He did not choose them because they were more intelligent or more holy or more deserving. He chose them because he had to pick somebody, and he could have picked anybody, but he chose the Jews. He chose the father of the Jews, Abraham, and all of his descendants, and through them to bring his message to the world, he chose them. Here's some reasons for his choosing, I should say. We don't know why he chose them specifically, but we know what the purposes that he had for them, and here's the purposes. Number one, to declare the truth of who God really is. He had to have a people, and he chose the Jews, and part of their job is to declare the truth of who God really is. Look at Isaiah up on the screen, chapter 43, 21. My chosen people, that'd be the Jews. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. They will do it. doesn't say they might do it. It doesn't say they should do it. It says they will do it because that is what they're doing. They're doing it whether they obey him or not. You know, you glorify God whether you obey him or not. You know that, right? God's going to be glorified whether you're in hell or in heaven. Did you know that? He's going to be shown for rightly judging sinners because you're in hell or rightly accepting those who accept his son Jesus Christ and the righteousness the offers. And you've got to decide which one you're going to be on. God is glorified either way. God has glorified the Jews the same way, whether they obey him or not. But their job has been a difficult one, to be sure. So number one, to bring the truth of God to a world. Number two, to bring the Savior of God to the world. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God speaking to the father of Jews, Abraham. He says, in you, and ultimately his descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed, prophesying the Messiah, speaking of the coming of the Messiah. And then a fourth reason, the purpose of the Jews, the purpose their job is to transmit and preserve the Scriptures. I don't know if you checked, but your Bible is a Jewish book. With the exception of Luke and Acts, it's written by exclusively Jews and almost 100% about Jews. And notice, that's exactly, that's exactly what I forgot that one, sorry. You're a holy nation priest. We forgot that one. God has called them to be intermediaries for us. So what a hard job. Would you want like to stand on behalf of of a sinful world and speak on behalf of a sinful world to the God of heaven? It's been the job of the Jews. And then then this whole issue of the Scriptures and that they've been the conveyors and protectors of the Scriptures. Notice, then what advantage has the Jew? I bet a lot of them have asked that question. Or what is the benefit of circumcision, the mark of being a Jew? Paul says, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's talking about the Bible. They've been entrusted with the conveying of the message written in words that God has for us about who He is and how He deals with us. That's what the Bible is. What a job! Hadn't always been fun. You ought to ask a Jew sometime. A fifth reason why God has called or the purposes that He has for His called people, the Jews, is so that through them we could know His character. So that through them, we could know His character. We could know, first of all, that He is faithful. How do we know that He's faithful? By the way, He dealt with the Jews. He said, do these things and I will bless you. And when they did those things, guess what? He blessed them. And then He said, don't do these things or I won't bless you. And they being the numbskulls like the rest of us, went ahead and did it anyway. And guess what? He did not bless them. Showing His faithfulness. Showing that He says what He means And means what he says. And the Jews are an example. They are a a word picture of how faithful God is. He's also used the Jews to show us how gracious that he is. That even though we sin, even though we're heinous in our sin, even though we run and we mock God, we do all these things, that if we will return in repentance, we talked about this last Sunday, that God graciously accepts us back. The Jews are a prime example of that. Micah 7, 8. 18, I'm sorry illustrates that or lays it out for us who is a god like you he says who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellion rebellious acts of his remnant of of his and of his possession who is like him see they convey this message to us they show it to us the bible is about the jews and how god dealt with them but it's ultimately not just for the jews it's for all of us now we can know this is the way god is This is the way he deals with things. This is the way he treats people. This is the way he'll treat me. You better pay attention to what it says. Because they've been used as a prime example of that. He also shows not only his graciousness, but also of of what happens to those who refuse to repent. I mean, look at the 20-something different layers in Jerusalem and the cities of of Israel today that they've discovered archaeologically in excavations. 20 layers of rubble and of burned stuff because these people wouldn't obey him. And so God sent army after army after army to get, to get their attention. Look at how he kept the people of Israel out of their land for 2,000 years. Do you think he's not serious about sin? You think he doesn't take your unrepentance personally? Look very carefully at the vast amount of evidence that stands in front of you with regards to Israel. They disobeyed him, and what happened to them? Oh, boy, you don't want that to happen to you. Boy, you don't want to go down that road. But boy, they went down that road, didn't they? Brings us to the place where we are now in the book of Zechariah. How did they get to the place where they were in need of encouragement, like what happens to him here in Zechariah? Notice what it says. The people, speaking of the Jews, were very unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. Big mistake. Going to mess with God in his hometown? Big mistake. They scoffed, it says, at his prophets. Until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Don't make him do it, but he will. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, until and they conquered it, and the city was desolate for seventy years. As is going to say here, until all the days of its desolation had kept its Sabbath, until seventy years were complete. Just as it goes on to say, just was predicted. By the prophet jeremiah so god sent now that's where we find our story that's where we pick it up here in Zechariah. these people have now been 70 years in exile he's brought them back to their city now they're humbled extremely very few in number their city is in rubble their temple is in rubble they have no money the surrounding peoples are against them they're in a very humble state and God sends them two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to bring them messages, in particular Zechariah, of encouragement and comfort. So the vision of Zechariah is a comforting and encouraging one, even though you don't understand it yet, but I'm going to explain it to you. We don't have time, by the way, to run down all the biblical references to the points I'm about to make to you. So pay careful attention to what I'm going to say, but I'm going to ask you something I don't normally do, which is you're just going to have to take my word for it. Unless you have another hour, I know you plan to be out of here and eat somewhere by 12, so if, if you'll come back next time, we'll do more running down the biblical answers to this. But I'm going to explain this vision to you just simply from my own homework, like I said, and, um, and we're going to take time later to make sure that we run down all the scriptures to show you where I got this homework from. Number one, the vision is of a troop of mounted angels doing a recon mission on the earth. That sounds like military, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Maybe you don't know what the Lord of Hosts means. It names him that way several times there in the first chapter. What does it mean to be the Lord of Hosts? Does that sound like he's the head of, I don't know, some kind of entertainment district? You know, we're the host and hostesses here, and he's the chief host? Is that what it means? No, it's one of these unfortunate places where we've left, the, left it in the Old English, and we've not interpreted it in the Modern English. we interpret it in the Modern English, you would hear that he's the Lord of Armies. God has an army? Yeah, not just one. He's the Lord of armies. And what you have in front of you here is a recon mission of a a particular sect of his army. And the head of that army, as we said already, is not an angel. Sitting on a red horse and then dismounting from that red horse is nothing other than the pre-incarnate Christ. This is serious business. So God is doing recon in the earth, bringing back the answer that the world is at peace, but God is against that peace. They're in the midst of a group, as it says here, we read there, of myrtle trees, what are they? So the horses are symbolic of war, particularly the red ones. The riders, of course, are God's armies. And it says they're in the midst of myrtle trees right there. Are you looking at that? What are those myrtle trees? They're symbolic of the Jewish people. You go to Israel with this, you're going to see plants growing out of walls in a lot of the cities and the towns, and these scrubby little, ugly little plants. Those are myrtle trees. They don't make trees, really they make a tree if you get them really down in a low place and they get watered really well but for the most part they're these scrubby little ugly trees these things represent in this image that we have in front of us they represent the Jews lowly humbled nondescript but I will say this same is true for the myrtle tree as it is for the Jew hard to kill and most importantly maybe for the scrub bush once it has a beautiful scent but it only releases its scent when you crush it. That's the Jews. And where do we find them? It tells us here, if you kept, if you kept reading there. It says they were down in a low place, right? They were down in a hollow and, and, and amidst, in the midst of these myrtle trees was this angelic uh, recon group, this, this army headed up by the Son of God. What's the imagery here? So not only do we have myrtle trees, which are very lowly plants, but they're down at the very bottom. It's a picture of the, of the Jewish people as they're looking up to their city. They can't figure a way in. They can't figure a way to fix it. they got nobody supporting them. And they're looking around their cells saying, we're just lowly myrtle trees. What can we accomplish? We're nothing like the oaks, nothing like the cedars. And God's saying, look around yourselves, my children. You're in the midst of my army and headed by my son. Pay attention to your position. This angelic recon has has bringing them good news that, hey, God is with you. God's going to provide for you. God is fighting for you. And so let's get back to what happens here. So the angelic recon brings back this, this news that sounds like good news for us, that the whole world's at peace. Isn't that what we're all about? Shouldn't we be about world peace? I mean, if I give you an answer sheet out here and says, what would you choose? Would you choose world peace or world turmoil? Which would you choose? World peace, Right. If you're Miss America standing on the stage, you know, to get your crown, and they say, what is your goal for your pageant, you know, I've never seen Miss America accomplish anything other than being pretty. But your goal, what are you going to accomplish as being Miss America? World peace, she says, every single time, right? Because it's the right answer. Is it really the right answer? So, so the goal of the world today is increasingly so World peace we've created this this uh, entity called the United Nations to enforce world peace which they haven't done a very good job at in my opinion Uh, we're, we're at a state of peace unlike any other that we've known in centuries pretty much in the entire life of this nation we're at a place where the Cold War has ended and trade agreements with China and arm agreements with Korea isn't that a good thing I mean it feels like a good thing and we're in similar conditions that you find in Zechariah. The whole world was at peace. They had just done a recon mission. Brings back a message to God and says, The whole world's at peace. And God says, I hate that. Does that shock you? That shock you? Would it shock you to think that we would all vote for world peace and that God sitting in our midst would say, I vote against it? That bother you? Well, it should. It ought to, it ought to make you question something. Well, what am I missing? Well, yeah. Very good question. Because we're at peace, but are we really? Was it real peace? Here, here's the question you need to always ask yourself. You want to know what real peace is? Ask yourself the question. Or I should say, ask the question, tell me, tell me how the city of God is. So, so the whole world's at peace, but the city of God and the people of God are not at peace? Is there real peace? No. Have any idea what it's like to be a Jew living in Israel today? You know, last night I laid in my bed and listened to the fireworks go off here on the island, by the way, third night in a row. Here we are Memorial Weekend, that's what we do. Hear these big booms and stuff. Two months ago, I was laying in a bed in Israel and I heard the same sound except it wasn't fireworks. 35 miles from Gaza Strip. That's their life. That's their life. That's been their life. So Here's your schedule get up in the morning. You fix breakfast for your kids. You get them clothes. You take them to school You go hide in a bomb shelter half a day You go get out you go back to work you go get your kids you take them home you feed them supper You sleep in a bomb shelter That's the way it is for them That's every day for them It's just their culture Because why because there isn't real peace guys There's not There's not it's a mirage it's a lie. It's the piece of injustice. It's a piece of inhumanity. It's a piece of indifference. How can the people of God be at peace when this kind of stuff is going on? When all the things are wrong in the world, is everything right in the world, then how can we be at peace? There got to be a part I'm not saying you shouldn't sleep at night. I'm just simply saying, there ought to be a part of me every day that's sick that's upset. There ought to be a part of me. I'm hoping that I'm that connected to the God who saved me that I have at least some of his same attitude about the world that I live in. Because see, as as peaceful as you may feel, you need to know that as the conditions were in the book of Zechariah, so it is today. Underneath the surface of all this seeming peace, which is a mirage, underneath the surface, there is an army mounted, and the head of that army is the Son of God. And the horse he's on is not a white one. It is a red one. There is coming a time for this earth, unlike anything that has ever happened before, and the one seated on the horse, by the way, do you know what his title is? The prince of? Yeah, he's the one that's going to bring the peace. And not until you see him, you shouldn't expect anything, you shouldn't expect anything to improve, that's for sure. You know, uh, there was uh, a guy I was reading who was, did an experiment. He was in Asia speaking to a group of people. And um, he, he um, asked them to close their eyes. He says, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to imagine peace. He says, I'm just going to give you a few minutes. He says, I just want you to sit there. I want you to imagine peace. Didn't give him any instructions beyond that. And then he says, okay, when, you're, when you have this image in your head, I want you to open your eyes again. And as he opened your eyes, he says, tell me what you saw. So the first lady he talks to, she said, well, I saw a field with flowers and beautiful trees. Sounds, sounds peaceful to me. And the guy opened his eyes. He says, tell me what you saw. He said, I saw snow-capped mountains and an incredible alpine landscape. I said, it sounds like peace to me. Uh, another person opened her eyes, and, and he said to her, what, do you, what did you see? And she said, I saw a beautiful still lake. He went around the room, and everybody's was with similar you know, type of things, beautiful, peaceful environments. He says, it's very interesting That I've asked, you know, a hundred of you about what peace looks like. And all of you have named a situation in which there is no people. Every one of them. Every one of them. Why? Because the the scourge of the planet is. It's us. Church is a great place except for the people. Right? United States is a great place. I mean, our, our our laws and our statutes and our and our, our, our goals and our, and, our, and our rules are awesome if it weren't for the people. Government's a great place if it wasn't for the people. Organizations are a great place if it wasn't for the people, you see. Why isn't there peace? It's because of the people. Until we're at peace with the Prince of Peace. and why would we ever expect peace? I want to ask you, please, to bow your heads and close your eyes as we think about what God has said to us today. The Prince of Peace coming to reign there's going to be a lot a lot of turmoil before then no need for to wait for that no need to wait for that end to come we can end it all right now we can get things straight with the prince of peace the one who died to pay for your sins the one who holds out forgiveness of god to you to make you right with the father the one who doesn't hold anything over you just simply says call on me and I will rescue you call on me and I will be your Savior all those who call upon the name of the Lord it says will be saved To as many as believed him and received him to them he gave the right to become the children of God Lord Jesus we thank you that you are the Prince of Peace and even though we look through the lens of Zechariah looking so far into the distance, even today, of oh, the day when peace will come. We look forward to that. We look forward to the day in which you're going to comfort your people. We look forward to the day, and we pray for the day in which there will be peace in your city so that there can be peace in our cities, peace in the life of your people so there can be peace in the life of our people. God, we pray that you would hasten that day. But I pray, God, that we wouldn't wait till that day to make it right with your Son, Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. Thank you for being my peace, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being our peace here at Island Baptist Church. We trust ourselves to you. Thank you for working in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.